Hey, y'all. Got an exciting announcement. Our friends at Illinois Humanities have really just launched something amazing. What they got going on over there, Kiss? Illinois Humanities has launched Envisioning Justice Reaction. It's a virtual exhibition and activation kit that uses the arts and humanities to imagine a future without mass incarceration. That's our type of party. Go over there and imagine with the folks. It opened on March 23rd, and the virtual exhibition features works by artists, humanists, journalists, filmmakers, poets, musicians, educators, and activists. There's going to be a bunch of amazing work there, including work from Alexandra Antoine, Tara Betts, and David Weathersby, close comrades of the show, the Chicago Torture Justice Memorial, and Amber Ginsberg, some really great people, and many more. Please, please go check it out. You can find out more about Envisioning Justice Reaction at envisioningjustice.org. Hey. Hey. This is Ergo. It is. <laughs> I'm Chris. I'm Damon. And what we do here is reshape the culture of Chicago and beyond for the more liberatory and creative. Each week, each episode, we have a different long-form conversation with a movement worker, writer, thinker, person doing this type of liberation work in their various ways, people who are doing their thing to help move our world toward liberation. Uh, And we certainly did that today. Dame, who are we talking to? Oh, it was, it was an honor to be talking to to Myra, Myra Kwaja of the Invisible Institute, an amazing strategist, organizer, facilitator, but also just human being. Uh, this felt old school or close to the heart of, you know, getting <laughs> back to really, um, you know, being able to dig deep and kind of just highlight the humanity and the contributions of, of folks really in our our direct community and spaces that we are engaged and connected to. And so, you know, Myra's work and personhood is some something we've wanted to amplify on this space for a long time. And so I was really excited to, to dig deep with her. And we went so deep that this turned into a double episode. It doesn't happen every day, but when it does, it means that we were like in the weeds in the best possible way. So over this week and then next week, you'll hear the two parts of our conversation with Myra Um, A couple notes just before we hop in. More so than usual, we actually end up referring to a lot of past episodes. So maybe use that as an opportunity to go dig in and activate the archive that we've been building uh, over the last almost 300 episodes. Um, We'll put the specific episodes in the show notes, but this is just a little friendly reminder. Go find something old in our archives and listen to it and, you know, hear how much more naive we sounded then. It'll be good. Give us some credit. We 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 were OGs already when we were doing that. <laughs> we've been we've been jaded for a yeah. minute. <laughs> um, and some things we want to prompt or prepare listeners for is, is in getting into the depth of Myra's work, which is uncovering and documenting and analyzing the, the evidence of police violence and torture in our city and in our world. Uh, one. We get some some triggering information about an infamous officer involved in a high-profile and traumatic 
act of violence in our community. And so just want to prepare folks for that update. Uh, but on the, the opposite side of that coin, we're also uh, promoting or offering opportunities for folks to directly support survivors of police torture and their families and families affected by police killings here in Chicago. So the Chicago Torture Justice Center operates a survivor relief fund where 100% of proceeds raised are redistributed to the survivor community here in Chicago. So if you want to support directly, we want to direct folks to that to that resource. And as always, the link for that is in our show notes. And so we cover a lot in this conversation with Myra. So we get deep into civic engagement and local politics at the, the level of local school councils. Uh, we're able to reflect a little bit moving out of the season of the uprising of 2020 and the impact that that has had on us and movement at large. We talk about the impact of the university as well as study and research of an oppressed and marginalized community and really go deep into the humanity of one, how to be intentional and accountable when showing up, but also how to cope with burnout and how to really center regenerative creative work in, in making all of this more livable. So with that said, let's get into part one of our two-part conversation with the one and only Myra Kwaja. Let's get it. David, this is a, a silly question, but you're the only person that I would imagine saying yes. Do you have any interest in going to the office experience exhibit? Yeah, I do. I do. Jennifer went already with her friends and we were supposed to go back. And so, <laughs> she went with so I've heard good. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I support it. Go, 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 friend out. Then I got to be a you know back to where I started out. Now I got to go do a friend thing. So yeah, I well, rather... we we can be friends and go do it. Yeah, we, no, you're already in. I would love to come too. You, Myra, you can the... come too. I... We can have an office experience outing. Yeah, that sounds fun. How how much is the office experience? This is the rub. It's thirty seven dollars. Okay, that is a lot. But I have heard that these other experiences are like 50 to 75, yeah. like the Van Gogh. That's Gale what I was stuff. fearing. And I was like, no, just to walk into like a Dunder Mifflin replica, that doesn't seem right. But yeah, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm serious about this. Let's do yeah. it. Let's make this happen. All yeah. right. This is a verbal commit on mic on air. Okay. <laughs> we are going to spend $37 I feel to like go to the office experience. <laughs> fans, find us, find us at the office experience. I was trying to find an office appropriate joke or punchline. But, but it, it did didn't it didn't come. happen. Now I'm straining for it. Let's yeah. just start the show. All right. <laughs> that's fair. You'll get um, in like a that's what she said somewhere in this. Uh-huh. Show. Uh-huh. <laughs> I think that that might be your role. I feel like we have cemented positions where we cannot make on mic that's what she said jokes. Oh. I oh, think that's just, like one of the bylaws of Erica. It would be un- media. <laughs> I think it would be uncouth. Like I don't yeah. think what do you think, Dame? I throw out a, a that's what they said and you know. <laughs> Take take the suppressed laugh for the uh-huh. to, to get mm-hmm. to get it out. Trying to make a pop- problematic yeah, thing yeah. woke. I see. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, like, funny. it's like putting a potato at the end of the barrel. You know, just trying to muffle it a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> muffle it a little. <laughs> it still cuts just as deep, but oh, let let's fall out. Well, with the potatoes in place, we are so excited to have. On the line, it's been a long time coming. Truly one of my favorite people that I've had the privilege and honor of getting to know much more in the last couple of years and someone who I like value their brilliance and perspective and kindness so much. And I'm so excited to learn more about in this conversation. 
Also, um, let me make sure I pronounce your name correctly. How would how is your name properly pronounced? <laughs> Myra Quaja. Myra Quaja is here. Well, thank blah, God blah, you blah. didn't butcher it. That would have been really <laughs> yeah. funny. One of my favorite people, people. Maria Quaja. <laughs> I've, I've had anxiety about that multiple times in public because I just like no, know I, you as Myra I and read it and like. No, it's a tough I'm, one. You know, but it's not though. It's, it, not. It, it's not. Every time it's said out loud, it is exactly what I'm thinking in my head, but it feels like I'm saying it wrong. No, I, I hear you. Uh, no, I here we go. Here we go. A, sh- a strong, courageous Quaja. Hey, that's yeah, great. Hard. Yeah. How many, how many times have we mispronounced the name? I know I did it at least once and got corrected. I'm sure there are times where people didn't correct me, but there was one where it was a, a hard S instead of a soft S. Oh, Lord. And, it was, and I just like... <laughs> retreated into my body <laughs> this is like as a as an interviewer trying to do this my biggest uh my biggest fear but i'm glad that we we got on the same page i'm so glad to have you here why don't we start with the same two-part question we start every episode with in this time however you define time this hour this moment this season this lifetime how is the world treating you and how are you treating the world oh i love that question i'm going to define time as the pandemic. I've been thinking of time as like chapters of my life. Um, And I feel like the world has been treating me truthfully, like very generously. I mean, it's been a really, really hard time. And I think I've had a lot of space or ability to still be in touch with community and be outside and get closer to people like you both. And to me, that feels like that feels kind of generous because I know a lot of people in other parts of the country and world that have had to kind of like shrink their entire like understanding of what they can do, can do, have gotten sick. And so I do feel like very, very blessed for remaining in pretty good health overall. Like I haven't had to experience the worst of COVID. I haven't lost anyone super close to me. And so I guess I am thinking about it like relative to people in my life, but it's been an extraordinarily hard two years and I think all of our lives have changed in ways and like lost people in ways we couldn't have imagined. And I, I feel like me personally, I have still been able to learn, meet new people, stay healthy and and grow. And sometimes I don't want to go so far as to call it survivor's guilt, but I do feel a little bit like I'm currently really lucky. As far as how I'm treating the world, I feel like I am trying to do my best best to like share that generosity and like wealth of opportunity with like everyone around me. And I think that's like all that I can do. Honestly, I want so badly to like leave this tunnel that it feels like we're in. Like I'm like, can we get to the other side? And I know that that's like kind of a fallacy of a way to think of time. Like sometimes it's like that. You're like, oh, I want to graduate college. Like, let me get out to the other side. But realizing that like, no, we're, we're in this pandemic shit for a while. My bet is like five years and I'm just, and that's a, that's a rough note to start on, but like, I want so badly to like get out on the other side of whatever this long, difficult transition period is. Um, and in the meantime, I'm just trying to like share all the good things with friends. So mm. the tunnel imagery, I don't know, really resonated with me and just like thinking of time as something to pass through, but it doesn't always work that way. And like, trying to say the image that's coming to me without sounding super pessimistic but it can sometimes feel less like a tunnel and more like a mine shaft of like <laughs> <laughs> you're just go- going into the into the darkness but like you can still come back i guess if that makes sense but yeah i really appreciate 
the like, how do you be okay with being okay wrestling that is like a weird conundrum to be in when back to old school buzzword when like the world is so fraught and, and precarious around you. Um, but we're going to fuel up in this episode. There's going to be a lot of gas um, because the way that you show up, Myra, is just, you're just one of my favorite people. And there's just like a grace in which you have entered space and community in the way that you pour into it that like want to make sure that we do a good job of like uncovering in the work here. Cause I, here's my behind the curtains, like fear of this conversation is that because we have such good, good rapport that like we can shoot the shit a little bit. And like, I want to make sure that we also like document and unearth like all that you contribute and all that you do. So that's audience and us. That's like the balance I'm going to be trying to hold. But with that, I'll kind of start with like a question of where were you when we kind of first met as like, we'll call that before entering the tunnel. So I, I remember, if I'm not mistaken, is it 2018, 2017? I feel like my... It's 2022, Damon. I know it's been... Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I just got to get to But back in those days, you know, you are a close collaborator and close friend with like friend of the show and kind of like friend of the world <laughs> and like the community. <laughs> Shout out to Trader Reels Tyler. I'm also going to throw a TRT hey, out there. Does it get, does she get TRT? TRT, yeah. Those are the initials I use when I take notes and stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so TRT. you know, you, you Trina and TRT, Trina Trill was, was super ganged up and like created this um, collaboration, this duo of like youth work, media engagement, civic education, electoral organizing was kind of my memory of it. Um, I was like, oh, shit, like they're doing some cool things. Trina got a homie, like respect to them over there doing their thing. And for me, it was the R3 space, the R3 coalition, which is a coalition of organizations that was birthed in late 2016, early 2017. Our dear, beloved Barbara Ransby was, you know, really important in helping to initiate and to bring that space together. Um, and I just remember having such a deep respect as somebody who I'm like just meeting, the way in which you contributed, pour in, but also like respected the space and respected the work and people's humanity. And like that is the seed that like kind of is planted of my like understanding and perception of you. And it has blossomed and grown and flourished into this like forest of just like some really exemplary humanity. So that's like the beginning of the of the fuel getting pumped in. We told you there'd be gas. No, no, we gas up. That's what we and do. And gas here. is and expensive these days. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's not easy to come by. Well, invoice me, you know. <laughs> so, so that's my like f- my fractured memory perception of like how I know sweet. and see you, and like in that space, we can get into some of the work and some of the things happening now, and like just like a deep respect has been developed. But I kind of want to go back to where you were as somebody who's like didn't grow up in Chicago, but like has really invested yourself in like a a locally place-based way and also very accountable to the fact of like where your position comes from. So what's your, what's your memory of, of that, how you felt about that entry point? I'm so grateful you gave that background because when you say like pre-pandemic, like my mind is like so fuzzy. <laughs> oh my God. 
<laughs> Whoa, so, I'm very excited about that sound effect. Yeah, yeah, you should do that more often. <laughs> and listeners also couldn't see the like G-force face yeah, yeah, movements yeah. you made. Yeah, yeah. It totally looks like you were passing through. Like, <laughs> and the hand effects going yeah, behind the, the head. Let's do the time warp again. <laughs> um. So yes, thank you for uncovering that part of my brain. Um. So for some background, I grew up in Pittsburgh. And I'm Pakistani, so you know, viewers at home. Can't shout out, me. shout out to you know <laughs> that settler colonial state of Pakistan. Um, well, let's put it that way. Um, <laughs> it's tough. I'm Kashmiri Punjabi. That's probably the better way to refer to myself. Um, but I moved to Chicago in 2012, and I met the friend that you're talking about, Trina, um, right after college, like right after I graduated in 2016. And we were working together, currently still are, at the Invisible Institute, which is a journalism organization. Remember, she was an AmeriCorps fellow. And we really got to know each other through working with high school students um, at Hyde Park Academy. A part of our job was like leading these broadcast media workshops that really focused on play and doing like improvised role plays and having discussions about constitutional rights. So it's not a know your rights workshop. It's a like, how do you stay safe workshop? So processing various police encounters, um, really heavy stuff discussed in the context of play and being goofy and then also taking serious moments seriously and doing interviews with kids, letting them interview each other. I think because we just enjoyed that type of play so much that we realized there was a lot of important information that we were observing in Chicago around elections that we were like, oh, none of our students are getting this information. Let's start finding ways to share it. That's just not boring. So we just started like improvising together and like making videos on our iPhones. And we have so many that we never put out on social media because <laughs> they're just so cringy, but like so fun. And I would describe like those years as like maybe the most fun that I've had in my life. Like just being goof, like improvising songs all the time, making songs up about data um, like really, really corny stuff, and all of our you, coworkers. You were, you were walking that corny adjacent line. That oh man, always. Man. And, I, and we wouldn't put stuff out, but we were like, eh, it's you're like veering too far into like just a tad bit. So, but uh, I think our favorite one was the Chicago mayoral election. You know, R.I.P. Um, was uh, R.I.P. Hope. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, there were so many candidates. I remember the initial election was around the Super Bowl. So we made like a Super Bowl themed explainer together and we like had a friend film it. We like wore fake mustaches, like pretending to be football coaches, like just some of the goofiest shit that I could have never imagined like putting on the Internet. And it was so funny how many people I have met kind of almost as a result or in connection to that <laughs> who have come up to me and been like, are you that girl from this video where you and Trina wore mustaches? Like another friend who will, I think, be on the show, Dixon Romeo. That's how he met me. <laughs> and so what He's a first like, where's, impression. Where's your mustache? <laughs> um, what a first impression to this like whole beautiful community and world of Chicago. Um, I really give a lot of credit to Trina for like bringing me into spaces with her and letting me just be a goofball. Your question was, how was I feeling at that time? I think I was feeling just like learning a ton everywhere I went. And also like in the R3 space, I was developing a political analysis still. 
I was coming to abolition at the time. Um, that's something I also give a lot of credit to Trina for is that I knew that abolition was an accessible concept, but I didn't know that it was something that I could claim if I didn't have the solutions for every single thing. I felt like there was a lot of like, what about the fill in the blank? And I think a lot of us have since learned that you do not need to have the answers for everything to to embrace abolition. So I think my head was very much in the space of like exploration, play, and like learning how to talk about and think about abolition. Before I pass to you, Dave, just a quick little little stat fact. Pakistan was our 39th most listened to country over the last 12 months. No <laughs> we got, way. We got 12 listens from Pakistan over the last year. Wait, out of how many countries do you have listeners from? Well, I don't know at total, but there's we get the top 50. Out of 40. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, well, there's, I, a lot of, there's a lot of countries. That's there's a lot yeah, of countries. There yeah, are. Yeah, yeah there's I, as many countries that have the internet as possible. It was yeah. 39. I'm wondering if any of those people are my people. They might be. You might have you might have helped us out. Didn't you travel to Pakistan? Yeah, I did. I did. Did you listen did to you the podcast listen? while you were there? Uh, probably. Was it not. you? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it was you me listening times? twelve times. No, that actually feels better. That's the first time someone said probably not. I was like, oh great, it was someone uh, else. What a really, what a really. <laughs> no, right. no, it was definitely someone else. But I think just like social media wise, I feel like. I can imagine some friends and family listening to it. Yeah. Shout out. Shout out, shout out to y'all. That's great. Shout out to the homeland. All right. <laughs> um, so I'm glad we kind of jumped back to that moment, Dane. That was that was real slick. Because I think I want to talk a little bit more about the two of your and Trina's friendship. Because I think part of as the four of us have gotten to know each other better, there's been this feeling of like bizarro world versions of each other in some ways that has been really fun. And I think even, you know, a lot of that's related to, to the work, but I think there is this like kinship in thinking about how media fits into movement work and the idea of like fun and play and laughing as being an important component of this, both like so that it has its impact, but also like so that you can stay okay while you do it. Um, and collaboration as like yeah. th- the tactic of, of craft and of building. Mm-hmm. And in the the in between space of like journalism and like political work, mm-hmm. yeah, no, for sure. And and so in thinking about the two of y'all's relationship, you know, I, I heard you kind of name the like appreciation for how she brought you into spaces with the, you know, kind of openness for you to still be you and do your thing. I love to talk to people about their partnerships, whether that's personal, collaborative work. What is it that you love about her? Oh. Oh, I'm gonna cry. <laughs> oh, that was so sweet. <laughs> what is it that I love about Trina? I love how Trina is so willing to think about, talk about, have fun about like everything. And that can be anything from like her current passion for like understanding unidentified flying objects. I don't know if any of you guys know this, but she's like oh. really like embraced learning about all of those things to like, you know, making sure that we have space in Chicago for very painful conversations around like sexual assault at the hands of police and talking about um, brainstorming, like how do we have a response to this ongoing problem of like missing black girls and missing black women when the police like aren't responding? She's always pushing people to have conversations and think about things that are not comfortable to think about. But she does it in this way that is so inviting and loving. And she she has fun in every way. Um, the other thing I would say is Trina has this like um, superpower 
And I know sometimes she doesn't want that superpower, but she can change the energy of an entire room, space, group just by entering it. It's almost like, um, you know, like a very empathetic person, but like if an empath could also just like push out that feeling to like have everybody else feel it. And so that ability to shift the tone of a room is so special to witness. And so when I've seen her like bring me into spaces, like she brought me into the R3 space, um, I could just see the the way that she's able to not just like work a room, but like change the entire tone, energy, you know, possibilities for that conversation. I think that all shines through so like clearly from someone who isn't as connected to her as you are, but it makes perfect sense. So I, I want to just jump back to, you know, to what you said about like being brought into spaces like R3 and all that. And, you know, part of what in that bizarro world pairing, obviously we are very different people, but it's part of what I've always like observed and appreciated about you is I've learned a lot from you about how to arrive and be in spaces and in, in ways that feel very like comfortable and allow for all of you to be there, but also are very like aware of power dynamics and outsider position and how to still be part of something without taking ownership of just all of the kinds of complications that for the last eight years in being in Chicago and doing this work, I've really like struggled in good ways and wrestled with and had hard times with. And so I'm curious for you, how do you think about and, and you might not have a clear answer, but how do you think about your position in relation to to the city as I, the the like outsider insider dichotomy has we're we're kind of past that in some ways. Like, how do you think about this relationship to the to the places that you're part of now? And I would love to throw a, a time axis into that question, right? Like, how has that shifted or changed yeah. or reshaped yeah. itself over time? Yeah, um, the time axis thing is helpful too. So, I came to Chicago in 2012 to go to the University of Chicago, which I think is a really important part of the the (laughs) University of Chicago, (laughs) excuse me, Um, which I think is a really important thing to say because of the university's really oppressive position on the south side of Chicago. If you're not familiar, the university has played a huge role in defining urban development I'm using air quotes, but like defining what it looks like to create a university in a city that has a lot of poverty and carving out a bubble, having private police, taking over real estate, gentrifying the surrounding neighborhoods that other universities across the country have since replicated. And they still do this to this day. The way that they study crime is emulated in New York and LA, et cetera. So me having a degree from UChicago means that I can like study the South Side, right? And like publish book, like potentially go into academia and make money off off of studying the South Side, um, which a lot of people do. It's a whole industry. And so something that I was very self-conscious of, but like I think needed to be was like thinking about what jobs and what type of work and what types of relationships I pour myself into after college so that I'm not necessarily adding to that dynamic, but also ideally fighting against that dynamic. And so I think it has been a slow journey. So in the past like six years, I, one, have like really put myself in a place where I'm always thinking about how will my students or former students from Hyde Park Academy, which is a few 
blocks away from you, Chicago, heavily policed, very low income. How will my students feel about the work that I'm doing? Is it improving their life in, or like their family's life in some substantial way? Are my relationships with them real or do they feel transactional? And I have been very lucky to like develop these like mentorship or community relationships with people who are not tied to the university in some way. The other thing I'd say is like, I have also just learned a lot from friends who have grown up in the area and have experienced some of the worst from UCPD, um, which is University of Chicago's police department. Also feeling like I'm holding myself accountable to like what it is that they need or how they feel about the university. Like to Daniel's point, like I don't have an answer for it other than I think it is really important to stand on your beliefs. So for example, I have felt like I've been a part of this like crusade against the crime lab, which is the University of Chicago's like research entity that is embedded in the police department, like basically is an arm of the police department. And so many U Chicago students go and work for them. And behind the scenes, like in private conversations, they'll like voice their concerns or complaints, but in a very like politician-like sense, will never like come out and be against it or like will never come out and like be vocal about the concerns around the Obama Center. They won't be a part of like organizing for affordable housing around the Obama Center because they maybe want a job with the Obama Foundation. And so I think if there's one thing I could like encourage people to do who've like come to Chicago in a position like I am is like you have to like stand firm publicly in the things that you really believe because even though it will kind of isolate you from maybe the friends that you had in college or whatever, you'll find a bunch of new friends who share your beliefs and you won't actually be cut off from job opportunities. So that's that's what I figured out so far. Yeah, that value-driven stuff is like, I don't know everything, but I know what I what I believe is a good yeah. kind of guidepost, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I have so many reflect. My first reflection then back to a question is like, and just hearing that ideology is not really at the forefront of oppression in, in so many ways, like careerism and opportunism and like self-preservation is more like where the agency of people who participate and expand or secure these harmful or detrimental resource institutions. Uh, and that's just really deep to think about, right? Cause like, we think if we teach people about the history of the world or if we oppose the fascists and the racists and the bigots, right, like we would get to a better place. But in a lot of the the places that we would name as like, air quote, a part of the problem, there are a lot of good people who participate in it, who understand that. It's not like there's an ignorance. Or, or malevolence, yeah. Yeah. Like, I don't know if it's dissonance or not, because I feel like people even understand sometimes like the space mm -hmm. that they're in and just... We are just taught as Americans to just like aim for these superficialities of success. Right. And and people need jobs in yeah. this structure. No, but not I, with the Obama I, Foundation. You don't need <laughs> a job. There's anybody who can get a job with the Obama Foundation doesn't need a job with the Obama Foundation. Right. And I definitely wouldn't defend somebody who's like getting a job with the crime lab or CPD. But I do think about like Amazon and other places. It's like I think people do have to make this like calculus of like pros and cons. What do I need for my life? And I think you're totally right that it isn't just like how well informed are you? Because I think you can, if you're hyper smart about all the theory and history, 
you kind of can rationalize your way through anything. And I see Chicago <laughs> people doing it all the time, like especially people who go into politics and they think they're being like smarter than the whole picture because they are aware as they do it. And that's very frustrating. And I think the question ultimately comes down to like, how are you affecting capital? Like, is your presence at the Obama Foundation ultimately like, are you shifting anything like that you that you care about? And if the answer is no, then it doesn't really matter what you personally believe behind the scenes. It's like, what are you concretely affecting? It might matter in your personal relationships, but in terms of like, how do you connect to the place around you and the, you know, the direction of it's a movement. I mean, I get like, which movement direction are you feeding into? Right. Mm -hmm. You know, so so I, I want to go back to, to the work a little bit from that place and I want to like differentiate or distinguish it or like us like craft some language to name it because you gave this critique of like this external study of this space that is its own cottage industry. But at the same time, right, like there is a a, a record and archiving, a unearthing and a production of information of intellectual development of framing of data that you and y'all are doing. And so I would love for like people who are interested in like, I'm well-intended. I am trying to be engaged. Yeah. I have these skills or these trainings, right? Like if, if it's not to study folks from this like false objectivity space, what then would you say you're doing? Because it feels like you're doing it well. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really glad you said that because we, the Invisible Institute, I exist in that space that I'm critiquing, right? Even if it's in the like, you know, oppositional type of way, I am still in conversation with the people. And I'm, I'll just name drop because I'm not in academia. I'm not like that actually concerned about it affecting my career. But there are many Chicago. So a great person I'll point to is someone like Andy Clarno is a professor um, at UIC who has worked very closely with organizers of the Chicago gang da uh, to erase the Chicago gang database. Um, yeah, not the so, organizers. Of yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, please, God, no. Um, and he has many peers, but I think that if you're looking for a model of how to like exist in this space and use research and study and data for good, he is somebody who is accountable to community, to organizers, working with civil rights attorneys. I think um, there's professors at UChicago, Jens Ludwig at Northwestern, Andy Papacristos, like happy to talk to any of them that I think what is very frustrating to see is that their research that they get grants for and pour into ultimately feed and create new tools for the police department. And those are the contracts that their labs are designed around. There are examples at, at all the universities of like both kinds. And I think it is really important to, you know, if you're a police reformist, which I would argue that both of them are, um, you know, then I do think there needs to be deeper conversation among peers about how that reform is just like emboldening the police department to do the same thing in a more entrenched, refined ways. Right. But if you're like an abolitionist that is trying to figure out how to exist in this space, I do think there are models. Now, the Invisible Institute I'm talking about last because I don't think that there are many invisible institutes. It is not easy to do this work or to get funding for this work because it's not, it is journalism, but the organization doesn't only do journalism. We also do data analysis that doesn't end up feeding into any outcome of journalism. It's just, we'll give it away to other people or, you know, making tons of Freedom of Information Act requests that 
Many of them do become stories, but again, we give a lot of it away or like us playing and, and working with high school students. I mean, it informs how we think and hold ourselves accountable in our journalism, but I realize that that is not a job structure that many people can do or many orcs can have. Why do you think that? Um, I, I, think, I think I know, but I would love to hear you say it. Truthfully, I think it comes down to philanthropy. You have to have funders who are really understanding and willing to like fund things that don't necessarily have deliverables. Philanthropy, like any type of investment capitalism, it's not that they're necessarily looking for a financial return, but they are looking to see that their donation paid off in some concrete way that they can point to. That's really tough because not all of our work should exist for the sake of deliverables. If you turn everything into a product, then that's exactly what you're doing is you're you're turning all of your relationships or conversations into a sellable thing. And so I don't think that this is like a problem that any one person could solve, but I think it's just important for philanthropists to reorient their mindset around how to fund things that are not going to turn into a product. Is that what you thought I was going to say? Yes, that's exactly what I thought you were going to say. Of um, <laughs> yeah. One, there's this like commodification production you know, I think nonprofit is just a way to expand profit, even if it's not financialized. So it's about getting more back than you put in. Um, and that like we need to one, as you just did so eloquently, like just question the structure of that. But that also there has to be this like privileged credibility to be able to break from that mold in like a resourced way. And so because of like the work that led to the creation of the Invisible Institute and that being able to like exist in a way that probably everybody wouldn't be able to access or put in just the amount of time. Like, you know, it, it took uh, like 20 years or so of work before it could be established to, to like kind of have that ability to, to move um, in a way that's relationship based where everything doesn't have to have this like generative outcome or also like deliver what to who, right? Like it would be great that I would love <laughs> right. to like use that as like a, a, a entry point to talking about market box. But like, am I, if I'm delivering to insert foundation here, as opposed to, you know, a classroom at Hyde Park, um, that's just a totally different approach to everything. Yeah. yeah. And I would say that an important way that I've, we try to test like the things that are becoming products is by bringing them bringing these tools to classrooms. So for example, we have a website called CPDP, the Citizens Police Data Project, where you can look up the name of an officer or look by your neighborhood and see their misconduct history, uses of force, et cetera. And it was such an important day. I remember a few years ago when we brought the tool into the classroom and had kids play around with it and then just be able to be like, this doesn't make any sense. I don't know where to click. I wish there were pictures of officers. And then we like kind of went back to the drawing board and figured out how to redesign it in a way that made sense. But also we had to tell them like, based on what we can do, we can't put pictures of officers in there. That's not like public data that we get from the government. However, our friends at this Lucy Parsons lab has a crowdsourced database of photos. So in the classroom, we'll pull up both their website and our website and we can like do some matching together. So that's kind of how we test things to make them like accountable. 
a little just for the listeners, just um, so you reference Andy Clarno. We talked about Trina a lot. Just like after this conversation, you want to like stay in the flow. Andy is episode 188 and Trina is 185. They were actually a few weeks away from apart from each other. So we were in a little data research, little flow during <laughs> that era. And if you want to learn more about kind of the backstory of the Invisible Institute, we talked to Jamie Calvin a while back. I don't know what episode that was. Let me do that. I should have. Yeah. I was like, should I do the whole story? That's a lot. That's his job. Yeah. Okay. This this is all fair. How the fuck do I spell his name? J-A-M-I-E. Calvin is spelled K-A-L-V-E-N. They should have got me there from what I typed. I was not that bad. And Jamie was 182. So... So that the 180s like, was real, was wow. real. Data. I remember we had this moment of like, oh, are we... Kathy Cohen was in this lineup. <laughs> yeah, it's like, are we research data podcast now? Yeah, 182, 185, 188. Yeah, and you'll be right in flow. We, we're oh. actually creating a little, little retro suite out of this. A little invisible institute suite, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, research invisible suite. suite. I would also yeah. say at the time that you interviewed Trina, this project had not yet come out, but um, she directs this project called Beneath the Surface which is an investigation into gender-based violence at the hands of Chicago police. So if you go to btsurface.com, we spent a lot of time writing that website <laughs> together. So please. So yeah. so those plugs get get us right back to where we were of, of these websites or like, you know, to the like flip side of the way you describe the work. It's not all just ephemeral or non-tangible things. There are, there are material contributions. And so y'all created this tool, right? We created it. Yes. There was a moment at like kind of like the peak energy of uprising in 2020 where there was like this new high school and like just fresh out of high school, 16 to 24 year old new energy that was like really leading the mantle of like, you know, this every day there is action happening in this city. Um, And one of the most beautiful things that kind of emerged out of that felt organically was like at the points of like standoff or stasis or, you know, the crowd is not moving. And there's this like really defined line between here's all these cops and here are all these people opposing policing. Um, And what these teenagers would do would be pull out CPDP on their phone, have the megaphone in their hand and read off the complaint history of every officer present. And then the crowd would just go in explosion. So before getting more into like the data science nuance, uh, just the human of maybe you were present and experienced that firsthand. I know for a fact that you saw it. Seeing this tool be used in real-time direct action, and then also seeing it go from that real-time direct action to then the social media space and be distributed and see it as a a practice, a tactic, and also like real-time political education. Just walk me through that experience or how how you and the team received your tool being used in that way. Yeah. Well, as the director of public strategy, um, Ah. so it is to help (laughs) curate moments like like that um, that was one of the most gratifying of realizing that oh people are using this tool i think i really have to give credit to um the architects of the site like rajiv sinclair chaseland hunt sakari stone they put a lot of effort into making sure that it would be really accessible on the mobile platform you know no app to download I think we all receive that as, okay, this tool is being used in the ways that we need it to be used. I would say that, and then also seeing like public defenders regularly use the tool. That was how we knew like, okay, we need to keep 
pouring into this effort to make public data actually accessible because people can't just like FOIA. It's not like on the street people can just pull up um, a FOIA request, pull up a FOIA request, get it back back months later. Um, Yeah. So summer 2020 was a, a big moment because one of the things Trina and I worked on that summer was the release the records campaign. So every police complaint on CPDP should have a document attached to it, which is like the underlying investigative files. And when you read those, that's when you really see the stories of what happened, like testimony that um, someone gave, an interview, notes from the investigator, because otherwise all you see is like illegal search. That's the whole notion behind Trina's Beneath the Surface project is actually analyzing those underlying documents and narratives. And and the like why and how of how those like categories are built, right? Of like yes. what term gets used and how is that strategic as well? Yeah. And and what are the ways that using and relying on those categories obscures really important nuance such as sexual violation? One of our major pushes in the summer of 2020, and you know, we were at Freedom Square with this, we had a separate event for it, was trying to make people just more familiar with the underlying documents of those complaints and really pushing the city to release all of these records because they actually are required to. It's in the law. And then also there was a judge order in January 2020, and they have slowly been giving us records between 2011 and 2015. We have a lot of reason to believe that they actually have not given us the complete files, and we need all of them going back to 1967 to present day. So yeah, it was cool to tie in this release the records push into all the the movement of summer 2020. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that I've always valued about your work is that I think in that bizarro world parallel is actually very different, is that the two of you, and I think you particular like you have a willingness to dig into data that neither of us have the patience <laughs> or the the willingness to do um we're not elbow deep in that uh in the yeah same way that well, are. i would say trina is really the data analyst of the two of us i okay. i do my best to try to make complicated concepts more accessible but trina is the data scientist for sure <laughs> but even beyond the analysis like the the idea that that is a space from which to work Mm. Um, from which to create tools, from which to create access to knowledge and information. Like, I know if I feel it, I imagine many other people feel it too, of like the intimidation of that, uh, of like, even when you do get the information, all right, now you have, you know, a box of files or you have a spreadsheet with 8 million lines or all that type of stuff that I think even within movement spaces can often feel very intimidating. That's just something that I really appreciate. And I'm curious for you, maybe it's through that through the Trina relationship, but for you, like, where did that become a space that you're like, here's somewhere I can dig my teeth in and maybe provide something of value that other people can't? Um, I think my appetite for that type of work came from working in archives as like a history student. So my college research was focused on the relationship between um, Jeff Fort and the Blackstone Rangers, like pre-Black Peastones, um, to a church on the South Side. And so trying to understand these like institutional relationships and how they operated around the University of Chicago. Also the dynamic between like a white pastor and a teen like youth gang. Um, Wait, were, your, your research at school was about the Stones? Yeah. What got you interested in that? <laughs> <laughs> um, 
I kind of fell into it. Um, As many of the stones did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, they were like, oh, I live on this block, I guess. <laughs> this is me now. Um, an interesting tie to MarketBox, their first headquarters at the First Presbyterian Church is where we now have MarketBox. Uh, um, so for, those, for those at home, segue. MarketBox is an amazing food distribution uh, structure and infrastructure that's been built. Um, if you want to find out more, contribute to and or be a packer and or driver, we'll put that information in the show notes. Yes, marketboxshy.org. But yeah, so I fell into it. I was going to be a public policy student, as many University of Chicago students think they will be. And um, <laughs> I took a class with a professor named Kathy Conzen, who teaches like this research course on like the history of Hyde Park. It was one of the most interesting classes I took because it completely changed the way I understood like what this university was, is, and like the dynamics that it's had. And I wanted to just honestly like learn about what institutions existed around the university. I was like, there must be other players. So that took me to like understanding the like sort of political fiefdom of like apostolic church and TWO and Saul Alinsky's like organizing history and methods here. And the professor pointed me to this archive at the Newberry Library of like the First Presbyterian Church. And I mean, now the files are organized, but at the time the files were not yet like categorized. And it was just this like treasure trove of like church notes and newspaper articles and discussions about the stones using the space to hold dances as teenagers on Saturday nights until like 4 a.m. And seeing like the rules that they had and how chill the church was and also was really working from a perspective of like protecting these young people from the police. So the church was raided many times. And that to me was really interesting was seeing an institution try to do something that we hadn't heard of much, which is like protect young black people from the police. And they were punished for it. They were investigated by the Senate, U.S. Senate, you know, the Treasury Department. There was a lot of correspondence with them. The FBI and CPD raided them many times. They also, if I'm not wrong, received federal funding. That they did. To the too. So it wasn't just a space, but they also became basically a fiscal sponsor. <laughs> they were. They were. Yeah. <laughs> they were absolutely a fiscal sponsor for the Stones. It's got a while. I mean, the way that the notes are set up is like, yeah, they had a whole like management structure. And so it's interesting because like. So I want to shout out Natalie Moore's uh, book yeah. on the Black Beast Stone Rager. Also, episode 268. Hey. This micro conversation is, is like helping folks get into the archives. Um, A big surprise. Uh, yeah. This is what I do. <laughs> you know? um, but like in reading that, like what I realized is actually Chicago, Jeff Fort, the Stones was really like the beginning of conservative neoliberalism of like, look, here is the example that investment into communities and into social services does not work. In fact, it is a criminal project and it is tied with like the overturning of American values. And so like the criminalization of community work and actually like the end of like the war on poverty, the end of like the investment into the great society, these Senate hearings and like Chicago and Jeff's Fort specifically were the proverbial um, like welfare queen of the 80s, right? Like the, the stones of the 60s were the like, talking point for this. So yeah, mm -hmm. I'm really... No, I'm so glad you said that because the proposal and the idea was like, if we give these young people jobs and money, it will be okay. And then 
the city, the university did everything they possibly Daily. could to like, yeah. yeah, to make sure that it would be a failure. And then, yeah, all, all of the like the federal grant programs that were designed to do the same thing were just like totally thrown out. <laughs> After like two years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they had just started. <laughs> they were like, oh, well, this this youth manpower program didn't work in the past 18 months. So, yeah, nobody's ever receiving money. Like, what were we saying about that. funding philanthropy and deliverables? <laughs> right. Know? No, the thing I'm asking for is exactly what the Stones asked for. <laughs> <laughs> Which, honestly, that's so many of all these divest, invest demands are very similar yeah. To, yeah. to these arguments. You Some know? contradictions and mistakes around the way, but right. the, the folks in the Moe's had a lot going for them. I'm just going to say. <laughs> right. I'm, I'm, I'm an Free Jeff Fort, man. <laughs> <laughs> so, so this became your research focus, and I can imagine that really shifting your relationship to the space that then led to what we talked about. Mm-hmm. Um I want to go a little bit back because we, you know, we started in 2012 telling this story. But people don't just come here and blank <laughs> and then have all these realizations and then become right. someone who, like, I'm and we're, like, sharing all these ideas and ideologies with. Of the people who I, like, feel very connected to and have a lot of love for, you're maybe the person who I know the least about <laughs> their life before we knew each other. Yeah. Can we just get a... Are you comfortable? Can we get a yeah, little bit of that bio, absolutely. backstory? Like, where are kind of the the seeds of these ideas being part of your life? Let's you go back to Pittsburgh. the bird. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, I think growing up, I didn't give him enough credit, but I do think a lot of my political understanding of the world came from my dad. Um, so my dad was the first immigrant. Shout out to Pops. Mm-hmm. And I think my first political memory is like around 9-11 or actually it's a, around the Bush-Kerry election or not Kerry, sorry, Bush-Gore. And the reason that I knew about it and a lot of my peers did not was I used to watch The Daily Show with Jon Stewart before bed every night with my parents. And that was how I learned the news for a long time. And then on the way to school, sometimes when I like on the days that my mom would drive me, if I didn't take the bus, we would listen to NPR. And so they didn't like hide my news consumption from me. I mean, I think it'd be different now if I had the internet at that age, it would be kind of scary, I'm sure. But but you also weren't like watching CNN or like yeah. ABC World News. Yeah, right? no. So it's like, it makes sense how your lens could be critical of media if like The Daily Show and then even NPR was like how you were understanding information processing. Yeah. And my my parents were really big on us eating dinner together every night and not having the TV on. It's like now when I visit them, like, yeah, the TV's on and like we're watching whatever. But growing up, it was like the only time that we like would talk with each other. So I think that and then especially post 9-11, I remember my dad my grandfather had passed away a couple of months before that. And I remember my dad saying that he was really glad that his father was not around to witness it. And I was like trying to like understand what he meant by that. But um, I think the intensity of like the Islamophobia and redesign of American security systems was just like so traumatizing um, for my family and especially my dad that I, I understand that sentiment now. And then, yeah, I think... Now I'm on, you know, the board of dissenters, which our other, our friend Asha Ransby Sporn is a co-director of. Um, I don't know what episode she's been on, a but million she's, episodes. she's been on yeah. a couple times. Yeah. <laughs> Shout out to ARS. Yeah, I'm getting obnoxious now. I'm not going to keep doing this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I I realized that my interest and in, and passion about like anti-militarism and trying to draw connections from 
whether it be Pittsburgh to the world or like Chicago to the world, really come from my dad. Because I do think that in America, especially, we kind of have this complex of like what we're seeing and dealing with is like the most intense, like we are the center of the world. And I don't think Chicago thinks it's the center of the world. I think that's like DC and LA, but Ooh. I don't know. I think <laughs> okay. Well, I'm not going to be the one to say <laughs> we at least think we're the center of here. Right. Because well, we kind of actually kind physically of think, are. <laughs> I think that Chicago is the center of America. I think to understand this country, Chicago is the place to, to be and to understand. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, but the global understanding, the global understanding, yeah, which is, that, yeah. which is why I've, I was like, yes, absolutely. I want to understand and trace the connections between U.S. military and Chicago police. I, you know, really did not enjoy the research at all. But this like passion that I felt for doing it was like, I think it came from him. And then I would also say my parents were um, my dad designed the mosque um, in Monroeville, Pennsylvania, that I grew up going to. And so he did that kind of like architecture on the side. My architecture were, on the side? Yeah, he was an engineer. This is an but impressive he, man. I smoke weed on the side. <laughs> <laughs> my parents do not chill. Side, yeah. <laughs> my dad has so many. My dad likes to fly planes. He like, he, he does it all. He's very impressive. And my parents were really involved in this Jewish Muslim interfaith group that started right after 9-11. And are still involved in it. And that kind of got me into interfaith organizing. So I also started like an interfaith thing in Pittsburgh. And so I think that was kind of like how I got into like shaping a political analysis was very much from this like religious identity perspective and through seeing the mosque as like a civic space more than like a religious space. I, I had a question, but but now we're in the bag. I got to let you do it. Dave, get, get up Damon in there. Even knows. <laughs> knows. Once you said, once you said inter- interfaith organizing. And, I know. I was like, Get up in there. Um, can, you, can you just talk a little bit more about like what were some of the like remnants from that particular work? That kind of, I, you know, it's basically youth work is what you're talking about as a youth. As a youth, <laughs> like, yeah. How, how has that stayed in your thinking? Because, you know, I'm very interested in those questions of how religious space as civic space, as coalition space, where do those lines break down? Where do the contradictions they always poke through of like, we have a dialogue series and then people are talking and then it's an argument and it's like, oh, well, yeah. fuck, maybe dialogue series wasn't the first place to start. Um, yeah. Mm. How how, mm. how have you been thinking about that stuff now still in your life? Language I have for that question. I'm sorry. I, I, yeah, I, lo- I love Daniel's question. So I, I, I like elbow my way into him sometimes. Like, where was it liberatory? <laughs> Versus normative versus what was the like the contradiction between those things. So that's what I heard from the question. Yeah, I will use an ergo word, which is I think interfaith organizing is fraught. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I I thought ergonomic was covered. (laughs) (laughs) Surprise me. Um, Well, you know, I think a lot of youth organizing is like about learning skills of organizing. I can't really toot my own horn with this and be like, oh yes, we shaped like all of my peers' perspectives. Like I kind of think it was me like for the first time, like begging friends to show up to an event that I was planning. Right. And them being like, uh, I don't want to talk about religion. Like, and I'm just like, we got to have the Muslims come out to this. So like, you're the Muslims I know. So please just show up. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's not interfaith. If only one side shows up. Right. There's, there's <laughs> things that actually get called that where it's like, here's one side. And then there's one rep from the, <laughs> yeah, I was like, we're first of all, like the JCC is always offering to host us. <laughs> like, and we're never doing anything. So, 
Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, I think it was important for getting kids to think about talking about politics in a way that's not just centering literally like the faith um, or like the Trinity or the like the Quran or the Torah. Like there wasn't that much like religious um, analysis going on. It was a lot more just like relationship building and the stuff that we would share with each other as like 13 through 16 year olds was like, these are the rituals that I do. Like, oh, this is what Rosh Hashanah is. This is what Ramadan is like that type of stuff. So I definitely wouldn't say that it was like radical in any way. It was almost just like a type of like class or education that like we weren't getting at our public schools. Like my school was entirely Christian. There was like two Jewish people, two Muslims, me and my cousin. And (laughs) and it was very white and very conservative. So I think it was just like a different type of education space. I would say that it was liberatory in that I was learning that I could organize things and that. I could meet someone from a different like institution or community or whatever and like build a bond with them quickly or build a working relationship with them quickly. I didn't feel like I needed to like be assigned to do some type of work. I could like come up with it on my own with somebody else. So I think it was like my earliest stage of like collaboration. The tough thing about it was that it did not feel right for me to be like the representative of my faith. I would regularly like argue with the imam over like double standards between men and women. Like I felt occasionally close to my religion. I think at that time was the closest that I felt in part because I felt like I needed to be. And I do think of myself as spiritual and Muslim, but like I don't pray five times a day. I don't eat pork, but it's just like, you know, I, I, I don't feel like I, I will tell people I'm Muslim, like if they ask, but I'm not going to like apply to a grant for young Muslims doing like breakthrough work. I don't know. I, I I just struggle with the sort of like representation politics of it and the identity politics of it as well. Also, because the Muslim community is so diverse. There's no Muslim community. That's like just such a <laughs> and it, yeah. the one that I grew up in, like there was a lot of anti-blackness. There's a lot of anti-Shiism. Like there's just so much about Islam that like we did not learn and it's like various communities that we didn't acknowledge. So yeah, those are the, some of the ways that it was frustrating. I think that's such a good lesson actually for many spaces. It's like, there is no blank, the community yeah. <laughs> like that. It's in some ways there's like, that's, it ends up being used kind of like violently that idea of one, cause it pushes people to be representative of things that they don't, that they aren't representative of, but also the like deep erasure of like, no, there's like a community in Pittsburgh where some people go to this building that was designed by your dad. Like that's not the, yeah, you know? Um, and, and then I think like, yeah, we're not a big, like fuck identity politics show. That's not what we do here. That's not the the framework right, we see right. the value, you know, but that's part of the co-optation of it also is the flattening of it, I think. And we talk kind of about what the effects are of that on the macro, Um, But I think what that does, the way you're describing, like to a person being put in that position of like, what are the choices that I have to make to be the like accurate or responsible representative, as opposed to just having the space to wrestle with those things in their life, the way people who don't have to be the representative of their group have the agency to. Right. Uh, Yeah. That's a space where culture and politics really like have some uh, parallel dynamics of like this idealization of representation and just like 
even as we to Dan's point, like we're not a fuck identity politics space, but like have been very critical of like representative politics and culture and like the notion of like being represented is being represented and like rather just be present, right? Like you would rather mm, just be Myra. I see what you did there. <laughs> yeah, uh-huh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh-huh. No, no, no. Uh-huh. no that, that, that's how it goes around, the, around these yeah. parts. The one other thing I'd say is, and I don't think this is true of all interfaith spaces, but at least the one that I was in, like I had a lot of close friends who were Jewish, but this idea of like, oh, if Muslims and Jewish people can be friends then there can be peace in the Middle East and just like, <laughs> Whoa, what? <laughs> like to reduce the conflict. No, sorry. To reduce the occupation of Palestine by Israel to like a peace in the Middle East situation of like, oh, if Muslims and Jews can be friends, then it can be fine. It's like, oh, you're totally mistaking this conquest of land to be right. about religion, which not liking someone. And, yes. and the, like the clash of civilizations theories and all that shit. Whereas yeah. in reality, like in all in all those spaces, actually Muslims and Jews lived side by side, and it was at times fraught, to use our, <laughs> our word of the day. But for thousands of years, like you know, in Morocco and Libya and all these places, there were you know thousand year Jewish communities that lived in these spaces. That actually the establishment of Israel as a nation state is the reason why things got more hostile for them in those countries and they were and they had to leave. So the what ifism of that um is very ahistoric. Check that conversation out on a podcast that we'll be making next year. <laughs> um but <laughs> but that's interesting to hear you wrestling with that kind of at that point as a young person. I'm glad, you know, we're capturing that, especially in the way that we're talking about now, like having the ability to be you everywhere. <laughs> That's so much of what I think when I said earlier, like I respect, am drawn, admire the way you move. Like that's really what it is, is at its core is like, even without knowing you that well, I feel like I know who you are to some degree in relationship and like what feels important to you. But that's probably not that static. What does that feel like for you? Like, How is this process of being you wherever you are? How is that going? Because I know from for me, that's hard. It is hard. I think I'm getting better at it. I think something that's interesting or makes me like, I would not say that about myself, is that there's this, um, I'm like, am I violating some cultural code by sharing this? But there's sort of like a dual realities or like dual lives that a lot of like, Muslim kids have where like their parents don't know about the life that they're living. And so they kind of have these like split personalities and there's kind of a understood code of conduct among like at least the children of immigrant Muslims that I know and that I grew up with that like even if you're not friends with them, you're never going to tell someone in your parents' generation like, oh, I know that your kid drinks or smokes or whatever it is. Um, Or like, I know that they're dating a white person or something like that. And so I feel like I grew up in a place, in a community that was very like, you had your weekday performance and then you had your weekend performance, which is like when you are in your like brown Muslim community. And so I think part of the reason why I felt very like, all right, this is my whole self. I don't want to have split personalities in college was like, I was probably really tired of that by the time that I was, you know, to spend the first 18 years of your life kind of feel like you're always like, in some ways on eggshells, like, and constantly in a, in a form of performance. And I actually love performing, right? But like, to perform in your, <laughs> to, to, you know, have this like sort of, these different 
personas almost. I do think that my parents know me really well, but I think that took a long time after I turned 18 or like after college to actually cultivate. So I think that's part of it. The other thing is like, I definitely am self-conscious about like, okay, I've gotten more involved in like Obama CBA organizing or, you know, organizing around police abolition. And I think my role in the space is like, I'm not going to tell an older black woman who feels like unsafe in her neighborhood, like, no, you don't need police. Instead, I'm just going to ask questions and listen and realizing like, I'm not necessarily the one that's going to like change her mind. Um, But I think the current place that I struggle with it or I'm always thinking about it is like, we're doing a lot of canvassing and door knocking for this South Shore community benefits agreement. There's not a lot of like door knocking canvassers going around in South Shore. And so just being like, okay, I'm not a black person and I don't look like I'm from this neighborhood. And so how do I not be a pest or annoyance or like out of out of place? So yeah, I am always thinking about it. Um, But I think also the other thing there is like, you can't like spend too much time like being insecure or anxious about your positionality because we don't really have time for that. Also, like work that out in therapy or with like your non-black friends or something um, or when you have trusted friends where there's time for it. For example, I did not want to run for LSE the uh, first time I ran. Which is local school council. For the, it's you. our only form of democratically elected representation in our educational system here in Chicago. And I did. And a lot of the like anxiety I had around canvassing and asking for votes, I remember um, my friend Dixon, who managed my campaign, was like, well, we don't have anybody else that's like able to run right now. And so we just like need you to just like do it. And like you can't be like apologizing to people that you're asking for (laughs) votes from. And so I think trying to figure out when and where do I work out anxieties around that stuff and when and where do you just kind of like do the work? Because actually the movement is very limited on capacity. Like we actually need more people all the time doing things and like now there's other people that can run for Hyde Park and I'm ha- I'm like helping them with their campaigns. So thank God I can take a step back. But at the time it was like, we don't have time for you to be anxious right now. Like we need you to do the work. So that's kind of how I deal with it. The, the trade-off of that, that is true. It doesn't mean you're not anxious. Right. <laughs> so, yes. So then I go to therapy. I, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. So, so many parallels. Just the dealing with like anxiety in public space, enjoying performance, but performance being exhausting and not being able to date white people in your household. Like just so many parallels <laughs> that I'm feeling. <laughs> Who would have thought? In our upbringing and condition. This cultural. All right, pals, that's part one. Yeah, we, we got to stop it there. We, we got to let everybody catch their breath, process, take some notes. We don't want to bombard you. So, you know, take a little reprieve, come back, and, you know, definitely follow up with the second half of this conversation because we keep digging deep. So the next episode in your podcast feed, if you're listening live, it'll be next week. Everybody else, which is most people, just keep on moving down. And we'll be back with part two of our conversation with Myra Kwaja. Much love to the people. Peace.